coronavirus is upending our lives and reshaping society. In this podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, we're hard at work producing new episodes that speak to the current challenges. But we also thought that this was a moment to go back through our archive of more than 100 conversations and bring you some of our favourites. Coronavirus threatens our mental well-being as well as our physical health. The challenge is to use this moment to the fullest, to think more deeply about where our lives are going and how we can live with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. Today we bring you a conversation with effective altruist Rob Wiblin on making the most of 80,000 hours. I worry that like the, the perspective that you have when you're in a deathbed is just one of many perspectives and it's, it's not necess- it shouldn't necessarily be privileged. Um, and it could just be that even though kind of looking back on it, reading Twitter doesn't feel like you've accomplished that much, um, it, it was worth it because it was just enjoyable minute to minute. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Rob Wiblin studied economics and genetics at the Australian National University, starting in 2006 and continuing for a full seven years until 2012. Uh, He's worked as an economist in the Australian uh, Treasury, the Productivity Commission, uh, and then moved to Oxford to work at the Centre for Effective Altruism. He was the research director and then the executive director before he moved on to become research director for an organisation called 80,000 Hours. They've moved from Oxford to Berkeley, California, and are now in the process of returning to London. Uh, Rob runs the 80,000 Hours podcast uh, and is, he says, sympathetic to effective altruism and long-term value. Among his top research interests are prioritising the world's problems, reducing the risk of global catastrophes, increasing general benevolence and ending factory farming. Rob last year nominated some of his life principles on Twitter, including most of the narratives we tell ourselves and others are false, either designed to flatter our motivations or make sense of inexplicable, unintended, random noise. Large amounts of Western culture are habits previously justified by religion or required by a lack of technology that still haven't washed out of the system. The same individual at two different points in time are best understood as two distinct people, And the best selfish life would be dominated by delusional beliefs and base pleasures. But this can't be generalised. He is one of the most interesting and energetic thinkers and activists who I know. And it's a great pleasure to have him on the Good Life podcast today. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. It sounds like it's going to be a really fun conversation if we're covering those topics. (laughs) Absolutely. Rob, you work on issues that aren't just big picture, they're massive picture. What got you interested in that stuff growing up in Adelaide as you did? Yeah, I actually uh, 
don't have a great answer to this. Uh, I guess um, I got very, I was very interested in philosophy from a surprisingly young age, I guess around 10 or 11, 12, I was like concerned with kind of moral philosophy and like how do we ground science? Like how do we know that empiricism is a good way of knowing about the world? Just these like really fundamental concerns that bothered me when I was, when I was very young. Um, and I guess that got me into reading you know, philosophy textbooks and that, through that I encountered kind of uh, Peter Singer and utilitarianism and, and other moral philosophies. And then I just kind of stuck with it, even though it kind of leads to unusual territory for a teenager to be thinking about potentially. Um, and yeah, and I guess like, I just I have tried to kind of act on that in my career rather than just go and do something uh, really, really normal and uh, accommodate myself to, to, to the economy. So I've ended up, yeah, working, I guess, at a, at a nonprofit that's kind of also like a, like a think tank where we try to really grapple with these yeah, big picture philosophical and moral issues and then figure out, well, uh, if you wanted to do the, the, the most good that you put we'll, in the world. We'll get to that. Yeah. We'll get okay. to that. Right. You're, still, you're still in short pants at the moment. Sorry. I don't, I don't, want, to, don't want to lose that. Yeah. Um, were your parents uh, into, into philosophy? I mean, it's not... It's a bit abnormal for a 12-year-old to be reading Peter Singer. Uh, it is a little bit unusual. I, I just, uh, I think I found a book that talked about Peter Singer just in the, in the high school library. Mm. Um, yeah, my parents are very smart. They were, like, intellectual. We would, like, debate a lot around the, around the kitchen table. I don't think... I think they were... Quite puzzled by my interest in this though uh, they thought it was like uh, I mean I came home and said I wanted to be vegetarian because I'd read these arguments from Peter Singer and so this is animal liberation uh, no I think I'd read uh, writings on an ethical life or some compilation of essays where he okay. talked about this and he was some essay where I explained why uh, factory farming is so cruel and how we shouldn't yet yeah, treat animals yeah in the way that we do uh, and I came home I think at 13 or 14 and said yeah I don't want to eat meat anymore uh, my parents were somewhat dismayed by this although they, they came around uh, relatively quickly uh, but no, I don't. Have you eaten meat since? Uh, I mean, I have eaten uh, meat since then, but I've like mostly been vegetarian since I was yeah fourteen or thirteen. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, I guess I'm like someone who's unu I, like I read arguments and then I tend to act on them. Uh, I think like a lot of people kind of encounter uh, these kind of considerations, or they, you know they hear about you know ca mm. the case of vegetarianism, and they're like oh that's interesting, maybe that's right, and then they then they carry on. So I'm more likely to be like no, actually like I need to grapple with this and take action on it. I think taking philosophy seriously is perhaps something that's like uh, yeah unusual about about what I do. Yeah, but, so but, that's a really interesting point, interesting point, right? So you're you're saying a lot of people kind of are able to compartmentalise it in your in their head. You need to you need to act it out. I think that's right. I've actually gotten better probably at compartmentalising <laughs> <laughs> over time, but unfortunately I've already been grabbed. I guess my life is already on a trajectory where I'm kind of yeah acting, trying to like trying to act out my, my fundamental values. Um, but I don't yeah I don't really know where it came from. I think. I guess I'm kind of a believer that uh, to some extent our personalities are just shaped by genetics and biology and it's possible that I just kind of got some genetic combination that causes me to uh, be like very literalist about philosophy perhaps or really want to like act on, or be like unusually sincere and wanting to act on, on my beliefs. Uh, perhaps even there's like evidence you can get, uh, you get genetic inheritance on moral values. So perhaps I might just have inherited genes that cause me to be like very concerned about like uh, the care moral foundation uh, and to like not care about so much about like other moral foundations. We're about like, yeah, Jonathan Haidt's like five or six moral right, foundations. Right. Um, I love the way you're pushing this away from the notion that you might be <laughs> deeply good towards the notion that you might just be <laughs> lucky in the genetic lottery to have, to have gotten some, yeah. some goodly genes. I think moral luck just means that kind of, there, isn't, there aren't really good and bad people because we're all like, I don't believe in free will. So uh, we're all just kind of automatons acting out like what, whatever inheritance we got, whether it's, whether it's biological inheritance or kind of cultural inheritance. Uh, yeah. How can you not believe in free will at all, right? I mean, you surely, surely at some stage you're kind of making choices. Well, I guess I believe in compatibilist free will. So it's true that if I was a different person who wanted to do a different thing, then in some situations you would be free to do that. But I can't control what I want. So in like the most fundamental sense, I'm not free to choose at all what I do because I can't, because 
who I am and what I want is just determined by all of these things that occurred, like, occurred before I existed, in fact, or by random like quantum fluctuations of this and that. And so ultimately, I guess I don't really believe in moral responsibility for this reason, because it's not clear how, given that your actions are, full, like, are determined by things that are fully out of your control, how you could be morally culpable for, for them. Of course, we should still punish people to create good incentives, but this is kind of the utilitarian line on, on criminal justice. We, <laughs> we, we should pretend that people are responsible for their, for their actions because it's good to do so, because <laughs> it helps, but not because it's actually true. Were you involved in uh, altruistic activities at school? Did you sort of uh, get involved in political campaigns or were you, were, were you involved in helping out in charities? Yeah, I, uh, well, I started promoting vegetarianism a bunch among um, my friends. I started giving away like, my pocket money to, to charity, although, yeah, I didn't consider the option of going out and trying to make more money to, to give away. Um, I, I guess, yeah, I got involved. I think I joined the Greens at some point, or I was like, uh, I became like quite, quite, quite lefty on the basis that, yeah, kind of more, more lefting politics. Peter seemed Singer more... is running as a Greens candidate exactly, yeah. uh, for Kuyong at that Ex stage, right? Yeah, uh, I think that was slightly before, but yeah, uh, right. it was, um, that that was kind of it's like the Greens seemed to be, I guess, more concerned with you know, animal welfare and uh, climate yeah. change and other things that, that seemed to loom, loom very large in my mind. Uh, then, interestingly, I kind of uh, got very into like pro market economics. Um, and came to think that that was perhaps like more more conducive to to well-being. But mm. uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I I continue to like really pursue these ideas and think about well, you know how do they how do they cash out and, and what I actually ought to do. Uh, I had very few, well, basically no one around me kind of agreed with with my philosophy. So that I think that did hold me back a bunch because uh, it was maybe hard to remain like fully committed to something when everyone around you thinks that you're you're a little bit strange. Uh, but but eventually, I think on, on the internet, I connected with more people who shared uh, shared my views, and uh, then that like then then things sped up, I guess. Yeah, I remember hearing a podcast with David Brooks where he said that as uh, part of his conception of living a good life, he'd come to accept that he was going to be an earnest person, uh, and that earnestness gets a bad rap in a society that values uh, humour. Did you, at some sense, make peace with being earnest? Oh, I'm not sure that I am. I think uh, I post a lot of uh, yeah, satire on social media, and I think some people find it frustrating. I guess, uh, yeah, the social group that I'm part of is extremely into earnestness. Uh, and in fact, kind of my, like, uh, sardonic, like, humor style grates people the wrong way. Okay. I suppose I'm, like... Uh, I think people... So you're not in as compared to the guys you hang, the, the folks you hang out with at the Centre for Effective Health, right? Yeah, eighty thousand hours. But, <laughs> but compared to most people, on I the like, human yeah. spectrum, you're, <laughs> you're in us, don't you? Uh, I suppose that's true. Yeah, uh, people do say that about me. Uh, I guess maybe that's not how I like to conceptualise myself because I, yeah. I f maybe I find earnestness uh, annoying in, in some way. But perhaps I just have to accept that as a character flaw. And did you find it easier when you got to ANU and you were studying genetics? Was that a kind of group of people more conducive to, uh, to the way in which you thought about the world and altruism? Yeah, uh, somewhat. I mean, obviously, at university, you're going to find people who are like more interested in big picture philosophy ideas than, than you typically will at high school. Uh, I was somewhat surprised, though, uh, when I started studying science, um, how little natural scientists were interested in, in the bigger picture, you know, how society is organized yeah. and where humanity is going. You might think that they, I guess, like some scientists are, but most scientists, I think, have to hyper-specialize in some specific research question that they're going to work on, yes. uh, and if they're actually going to make any, any progress on it. Uh, and as a result, I... Uh, got more interested in, in economics because I think this was like in the early days of the kind of economics blogosphere where mm. people were like shooting around ideas, like yeah, playing around with very big ideas in, in economics uh, a lot. Uh, and for some reason, yeah, economists uh, seem to be very interested in thinking about, well, how could we reorganize society? Like, why do we organize the world this way? Where could yeah. things go in the really long term? They, they seem to have a bigger picture view often than a lot of natural scientists. So uh, yeah, that's why I switched from, uh, well, I switched from doing genetics to both genetics and, and economics. Yes. 
Uh, and uh, did you think about uh, staying as an economist for a while? I mean, you, you had that stint at Treasury and Productivity Commission. Did you think that that was going to be a path you continued down, or did you always have an idea that you'd go into the, the world of the non-profit? Uh, well, uh, when I started working in public service, or when I was finishing my degree, uh, the name effective altruism hadn't been coined yet, and there wasn't really this social movement or like set of organisations that, that exist today. So I really was a bit... Uh, I was somewhat at a loose end, not knowing exactly what I, what I was going to do. I think, in fact, uh, uh, building up career capital and experience and connections in the public service actually was a, was a really good option. And um, uh, it's something that I, you know, I could potentially recommend that someone in my situation uh, do, do, do anyway. Um, what but did I guess, you learn? Uh, I, think, I guess we have become uh, very interested in a bunch of uh, policy issues, especially around kind of security and preventing war um, and like guiding how new technologies are developed and, and applied. Somewhat hard to do those in Australia, uh, but um, yeah, there, there, there are some potential avenues there. I guess actually understanding how government functions and how, to ex how you exercise power and how you might right. cash out like desired outcomes in actual legislation. Um, I was building up some knowledge there, and that's something that I think effective altruism as a community uh, somewhat lacks. Uh, we have some expertise in that, but, but we need much more. Yes, there is a sense in which people can, can often overstate the ability of government to to do risky things uh, and to, uh, to 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 try try a whole pot, portfolio of approaches knowing that nine out of ten might fail but one out of ten will be uh, extreme, extremely valuable um, yeah it's something that the government does does struggle to do I guess uh, because we're so concerned about kind of civilization civilizational stability uh, we're perhaps uh, not so keen on lots of risk taking I'm actually perhaps less interested in, in innovation experimentation than, than people right. might expect but yeah we're perhaps getting getting ahead of ourselves I suppose I do think of myself as kind of an economist now I, I like spend most of my time thinking as an economist I suppose mm. in, in my role and a lot I guess if you listen to, to, to the podcast, a lot of the questions have a very kind of economics event to them. Well, you can, sorry, you can flip that point around and still get the same, the same result, right? So uh, people, I think, uh, my, ta ta taxpayers might be concerned about a government which decided to spend more than a trivial amount of, of money on a risk that they'd never considered before, um, such as uh, preventing meteor strikes. So. Right. Okay. So you're thinking, uh, yeah, can the government... So uh, in general, I think humanity is very bad at risk management, which is why there's a lot of really great opportunities to uh, improve the world by managing these like unusual risks that most people haven't thought about. And yes, like we do kind of delegate it to the government to worry about things like meteor strikes or, you know, uh, what if we invent some new, very new dangerous biotechnology uh, that would destroy the world um, or like runs the risk of destroying the world. But in reality, uh, like there's no one in government who really is responsible for thinking about that in, in, in most cases. Uh, and there's not enough pressure from voters uh, onto politicians to then mm. pass it onto the public service to actually allocate significant resources to worrying about like what are things that could really uh, take civilization off track. Um, and so it's it's something that's like the private sector doesn't really do it. Like it's very hard to build a business around this. Yeah. Uh, the nonprofit sector uh, so far hasn't really gotten funding to do it. There's not many foundations focused on it. And yeah, the government, which would be the natural place to do it, has kind of been failing because the the feedback mechanism uh, that causes you know government to invest serious money in dealing with these kind of tail risks uh, yeah. isn't really functioning super well. Yeah. So a couple of years after graduating from the Australian National University, you head off to the Centre for Effective Altruism. Uh, what are your, your early impressions of, uh, of landing in Oxford and, uh, and starting work there? Well, I think uh, the first few days I was very impressed with the, with the, with the old buildings, but very, you quickly accommodate to that as, as kind of everything. Um, I think the, just the intellectual calibre of people uh, in Oxford is pretty off the hook. It's like a relatively small town, and a lot of the people there are students or, or postgrads. 
Uh, so kind of any conversation you go into uh, can be like um, you know very deep in the weeds, and uh, you've really got to be got to be on your toes uh, to, to to keep up. I think that yeah, that was uh, perhaps perhaps to be expected, but it was, it was it was it was a pleasant pleasant thing to discover. Yes. Uh, what do they have you working on? Uh, well, initially I was looking at uh, what charities um, most effectively reduce poverty or improve health in the developing world uh, for the first uh, six or 12 months, um, which was difficult at the time. We had uh, very little resources to, to, to look into that. Uh, and we were to some extent competing with GiveWell, which a lot of listeners will have heard of, this, right. uh, this research outfit. Uh, Why were you competing with them rather than trying to complement them? Uh, so I guess I, I just arrived there. I, in, in the end, we ended up basically closing down that, that, that project because we realized that we should just leave GiveWell to do it. Uh, there wasn't really uh, room for, for two organizations to be looking at such similar questions. Um, I think at the time, uh, we, I guess, weren't completely convinced that um, GiveWell was, was getting everything right. But then they yeah. very quickly improved uh, or like took on almost all of our ideas and were like, wow, we're kind of out of... We, we, <laughs> we've got nothing really to add at this point. So, so we should uh, shut that down and look at other, look at other issues. Uh, so later on, I, yeah, lately I've been looking at... Um, what careers you could, like, yeah, if you want to improve the world uh, as much as possible uh, and you're perhaps a smart person in your 20s or 30s, uh, what, what job should you take? So it's kind of a much, much, broader, much broader research question, although we've had to narrow it down to you know, uh, a manageable number of problems that we actually specialize in or different uh, career paths that, that people could take. So this is the uh, 80,000 Hours organization, yeah. uh, your website being? Oh, 80,000hours.org. Uh, and why 80,000 Hours? So 80,000 hours is roughly the number of uh, hours that you'd work in a, in a full-time career. Uh, I think it's um, 40 hours times by 50 weeks times by, times by 40 years. So it gets, gets you to 80,000 hours. Um, so I guess there's kind of two angles on it. Uh, one is that that seems like a lot of time uh, when, when you're starting out. So possibly you want to spend you know, dozens, hundreds, possibly thousands of hours thinking about uh, how you're going to spend all of that time. Um, on the other hand, 80,000 hours is not that many hours relative to the, to the, to the scale of the problems in the, in the entire world. So you're going to have to prioritize a lot and figure out you know, what little chunk of the, of the world's problems are you, are you going to bite off where you think uh, you personally can, can um, get the most traction and have the biggest impact. Hmm. And where do people make the biggest mistakes? Oh, interesting. Um, I, I think the biggest mistake that people make is they uh, just end up working on a problem in the world that's somewhat chosen at random. It's just something that they learned about early on, uh, that they heard about from other people that kind of uh, grabbed, grabbed their interest, and then they, they start working on it, and then they have some expertise, so they, so they keep working on it. Um, I think that is a bad idea for, for multiple reasons. One is that uh, ideas or like problems that you're hearing about a lot are uh, ideas that are less likely to be neglected than others because if you're, if you're hearing about it there's probably already people promoting it and advocating on, on behalf of that issue so in fact it might be a kind of crowded issue where a lot is already being done to solve that problem and one one extra person potentially can't can't add that much on the margin um, I guess also just if, if you want to have the biggest impact in the world you'd probably want to look at like all of the problems out there think you know uh, rate them on a bunch of different criteria, and then choose to work on the one uh, that, that's, that scores best. And we, we kind of score problems in the world on three different criteria. Scale, uh, which is like how many people does it affect and how much, and you know, how long might it last. Um, attractability, which is like how easy does it seem to solve. And then this third criteria, neglectedness, which is like um, trying to get, uh, figure out you know, how much low-hanging fruit might be left given all the work that, that other people are doing. Um, and it's very unusual, I think, for people to systematically try to choose what problem they're going to solve with their career um, using that kind of process. And, and because so few people do that, uh, you know, resources are all misallocated across different problems, and you can get potentially you know, 10 or 100 times as much impact by, by being really systematic and, and choosing in an intelligent way. Hmm. So uh, if a young person comes to you and says, what should, what should I do? Uh, what, you, 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 su you suggest that they go through this mapping exercise. Uh, are, there, are there other sort of tips and tricks that you offer? 
Uh, I guess, so, so we have this career guide. We go through uh, all, kind of a lot of different aspects of, of how you try to have more impact in your career. Um, I guess another thing is uh, people often try to rush to have a lot of impact uh, early on, potentially, rather than thinking long-term and thinking, well, what can I do now to put myself in a good position to have impact in five years or 10 right. years or 15 years? So we have this concept of career capital, which is uh, kind of the experience that you have, the connections that you have, the credentials, like your ability to prove that, that you know uh, what you're doing, and also uh, money in the bank that you can use to take risks in your career. Uh, I guess yeah, undergraduate students, I think, very often look to immediately kind of accomplish something after they graduate or even do something you know, uh, while they're still studying. Uh, and sometimes people have the opportunity to do that. But for, but for most people, realistically, they're going to have most of their social impact in their 30s or 40s or 50s uh, once they kind of have more influence and, and, and more power over things. I think uh, taking a more long-term view in your career is uh, also often, often good advice. Uh, and I guess this this depends in part on sort of what kind of an impact you're going to make. I'm thinking of the David Gallantson work on creatives where he talks about uh, conceptualists and experimentalists and the idea that the conceptualists have one big idea that the sort of... Uh, the hedgehogs in that Isaiah Berlin meta metaphor, uh, who who need sheer computing power, uh, brain brain computing power, in order to make a make a contribution. So, uh, you know, they're like uh, James James Joyce and uh, and Einstein, Picasso, and then you've got experimentalists, the sort of uh, uh, Dickens, Shakespeare, uh, more of the current scientific innovators who need to work in teams and understand the world and, and contribute later. So there might still be a subset of people who really ought to just run like hell out, out, of, the, out of their undergraduate degree to make that contribution before their uh, brains aren't, uh, <laughs> aren't, aren't quick enough to do it, right? Yeah, if you're doing uh, pure maths or physics uh, mm. or potentially philosophy as well, then yeah, you probably want to do your best, you hope to do your best research in your 20s or 30s. Although I think like people's uh, peak research output has been getting older and older uh, because yes. it's getting uh, harder and harder to reach the frontier of knowledge. Uh, um, there's been a bunch of research on that. And I think our writers and historians tend to do their best research in their 60s, which is interesting. So if you want to, yeah, last a long time, then, uh, or at least like take a long time to, to reach your peak, then you want to go into one of those things where you just need to accumulate a lot of knowledge and experience. Right. And character-driven writers do their best, best work later. Plot-driven writers do their best work earlier. Uh, but, uh, but also, I suppose, there's the question of uh, your willingness to challenge existing norms. And I suppose one of the risks is that you... Uh, in that process of building up career capital, uh, you buy into a set of uh, sort of uh, norms norms around things. So I'm looking at one of your principle, principles for life, principle five, the law, tradition and naturalness in themselves just, justify nothing. Uh, <laughs> so you, know, you seem to be someone who is concerned about the extent to which we might buy into a set of norms around social change, mm. uh, which potentially are stultifying. Yeah, uh, that is definitely um, a risk and something that we worried a lot about, I think, six years ago. Um, so I guess the concern might be, well, you go into a more traditional career in order to, to build experience uh, and then you get kind of corrupted by uh, all of the people around you who are, yeah. you know, are like less yeah. socially concerned. Or narrowed. Um, yeah, more narrowed, or, yeah, less open to, to big ideas and yeah. big changes. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely something that people should look out for. Um, I've been somewhat surprised by how little that's happened, at least among the people I know who are, who are trying to build up career capital mm. to do something big later on. Um, but there's a big selection bias there that the people I know often are part of a like broader social network. They're, they're like yeah. outside of work. They're talking to people all the time who are interested in effective altruism and, and making big social changes. So I think that is one thing that can make it sustainable is, sure, maybe you're working in 
just normal a normal political party where perhaps people don't share all of your ideals or at least not not, you know, not all of your ambitions uh, but I think if you have like a social group outside of work that um, is interested in uh, the other the, like the, the problems that ultimately you want to work on then hopefully that can that can keep you on the on the straight and narrow I think I, I, another uh, thing that we think people should consider during the career is um, so once you've like chosen a bunch of once you've shortlisted problems that you might be interested in working on um, you want to think maybe systematically about like what approach are you going to take to actually solving it because there's often a wider range than, uh, than what people think about so one would be like you know become an academic or do research work at a think tank that kind of thing um, another would be to engage in advocacy so you go into politics you know talk on the media write articles become a journalist um, third is uh, earning to give, which is an idea that real people associate with 80,000 hours uh, quite a lot, but is like only one of kind of a, the, the four broad techniques that we think about. That's going out and making a lot of money and then funding other people to, to do these other things. Right. And then I guess the, the idea you might become a merchant banker rather, rather than a nurse because you can do, do more good for the world by donating that money to allow uh, an organization to hire a bunch of nurses in a, in a developing country, right? Exactly, yeah. And in some cases, that absolutely makes sense. That is someone's comparative advantage. If they're you know, much better at making money than they are directly having impact or doing advocacy or doing research, um, I think maybe like one in four people should be doing the, the earning to give role, trying to make money to, to support other people. And then the fourth, we just call direct work, which is kind of everything else, just trying to solve the problem directly, not through like, you know, doing research or advocacy or, or making money. You actually just are working away at the problem directly. Um, And basically, I think you want to find um, a, a method for solving the problem that matches the problem or, and also that matches your skills. So obviously, you know, if you're incredibly shy, probably advocacy is not the right path. If you're like, uh, not interested in you know, thinking about uh, sitting down and thinking about new issues, then research isn't going to be the, the, the right approach. And if you have no options to make money, then obviously earning to give it probably isn't your comparative advantage. So you want to think, yeah, both try to, yeah, try to match up. Um, what is a problem? Figure out like what is actually necessary to solve it, and then find one of those methods that kind of matches the skills that you actually have. Think something that you could become uh, really good at, and then if you can get all of those things lined up, then probably you're in a position to have a really big impact in the long term. Do you worry that uh, that approach, Rob, uh, dissuades people from being modest, gentle do-gooders in life? from setting up a corner store that employs three people, gives them worthwhile jobs, uh, brings happiness to those who come in, uh, someone who's then involved in their community, their local sporting, uh, sporting groups, uh, who isn't transformative, but who brings an awful lot of uh, good to their communities and happiness to, the, to those around them. Could, are you in some sense setting the bar at a point where um, you're looking for breakthroughs, but you could be deterring people from just gentle incremental do-gooding? Uh, I guess I, I don't worry about that. I might, might not be surprised to, to hear that. I, I, a lot of the people we're trying to reach are like very privileged people. It's like people who've gone to great universities, you know, very smart. They have a lot of uh, career options in, in, in front of them. And uh, I basically think people in that situation, just given the scale of the, and the severity of the problems in the world, should really should be thinking big. They should be thinking, you know, uh, I don't just want to help one person. I should be trying to help like as many people as I can in, in, in as big a way I can as, uh, as is plausible, at least unless it's like a, a huge sacrifice to them, which uh, typically uh, it isn't if they, if they choose intelligently. Um, so, I mean, I guess is your concern that as the person who might open, open a corner store and join a, join a sports team, uh, they're going to be discouraged from doing that and instead do something evil? <laughs> well, uh, what, what, might, what would be the negative consequence? They might embark on uh, 
starting a new organisation which is aimed at uh, uh, ending poverty in Africa. Um, that organisation may crash and burn, uh, have, all, have all kinds of, of problems, and they miss, in, in, in taking a moonshot to do something big, they miss the opportunity to do, do something modest and gentle. Uh, and also, you know, whether you feel as though you're devaluing uh, the good we might do through our gentle personal relationships uh, in favour of uh, the, the seismic. Yeah. Okay, so there's a bunch of different points. I think one thing is, uh, I actually heard Peter Singer make this point on, on his interview. Um, it was true, I think, in the past that just being a good person to the people around you, you know, uh, raising a nice family, uh, starting a business, um, like in hundreds of years ago, was among the best ways that you could take to, to improve the world. Uh, but we live in a world now that has like massive inequality where some people have, you know, 100, 1,000, 10,000 times the income of some other people uh, in some cases. And also just technology is advancing incredibly rapidly and allowing us to accomplish things that were impossible for, for you know, any other generation. Which means that like this common sense morality that, you know, you should go to church, just be like a decent person to the people around you, uh, you know, don't break the rules, don't steal and don't kill. That's kind of what, what a good life is. Uh, just, I think, isn't true anymore because we just have so much more potential to influence uh, how the future of uh, humanity as a whole goes than, than anyone in, in the past did. So I think people should be more ambitious. They, they should be thinking bigger, at least if they're in a position to kind of deal uh, with any of the, of, the, of the big problems that, that we're concerned about. Uh, what does the world look like if we all do this? <laughs> oh... Uh, well, I, I guess if the more and more people started taking this kind of advice, uh, the more and more general it would gradually become. So we obviously don't want everyone, we don't want everyone in the world to kind of stop just contributing to the economy and, you know, producing food and you know, building buildings and producing all of the supporting infrastructure that one needs to, to make a big difference. So we, uh, our advice is kind of on the margin, like amongst our readers, if, you know, some of them, we think thousands of them each year might like take our advice. Uh, if they're going to, yeah, for them on the margin, what can they do that makes the biggest difference? Uh, yeah. But obviously the advice would have to change massively if, you know, half of the world was reading our website and, uh, and taking our advice. We'd have to, like, have a much broader range of problems that people are solving and a, and a much broader, broader range of techniques that would be suitable for, for more people. Yeah. Uh, what aspect of the job do you enjoy most? Um, so I definitely, I really enjoy hosting the podcast, uh, just getting the, the chance to talk to, to really smart people. And um, so our, our interviews potentially go very long. The longest episode is a four-hour interview with someone. Uh, just getting to really explore someone's views in, in great depths and consider counter-arguments and hear back from them and, and then go back, go back and forth again and again. You I have think, argued that every podcast episode should be at least two hours, right? Yeah, and, I uh, think... We, we did have this discussion <laughs> at the outset. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't manage to, to, to persuade Andrew to interview me for, for the full two hours, but... Um, yeah, I think it's something that uh, we haven't, until recently at least, there hasn't been a lot of this like really in-depth discussions with people. Uh, the media would have like much shorter interviews and, and abridge everything and there just wasn't room to like really like get someone who's very smart and understand their view, get, get inside their head in, in great detail. Um, and podcasting, the fact that there's like, well, there's now hundreds of thousands of podcasts and like many of them do, do have this like long form interview uh, format. Uh, has kind of filled, yeah, filled this niche, this like I think, which I think many people are really, uh, really wanted. Which is, uh, I want like to really grapple with like big ideas uh, at length, not just over like a twenty-minute, um, you know, brief, like superficial discussion of them. And I think that that's probably the, the funnest part of the job. Uh, what are you What are you going to miss about uh, Berkeley when you move back to London? Oh, interesting. I mean, mostly the weather is the obvious thing. I think there's uh, some truth to that. Perhaps also the. Um, uh, 
there's pretty big cultural differences, I think, between America and Britain. Perhaps uh, it's, it's easy to, uh, to understate them because the language is the same. Uh, but I think uh, like the American optimism, uh, I think, might, uh, might, might, might miss that. I will just say that, that's also especially the case in, in, in the Bay Area around San Francisco, Berkeley, uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, people just really think that they can, they can change the world um, in, 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 in a big way. That's just part of that. That's in the water there. And I suspect that uh, things are going to be a little bit more pessimistic and a little bit more realistic in London, uh, especially with, with Brexit going on at the moment. And how do you think people in organisations such as the Centre for Effective Altruism and 80,000 Hours should be remunerated? Uh, should these organisations uh, be uh, paying their employees at an appropriate level as to what they'd be, they, they, would, they would receive in the, in the general market? Or should they be uh, paying at uh, the, 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 least, the least they can? What's the ethically right way to manage an organisation which is aimed at doing ethical good. So how should my salary be set? Is that the question you're asking, Andrew? Oh, how should, how should others, <laughs> general, others' salary be set if you'd prefer to take yeah. it one removed? Make it in the abstract. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is something that we've debated uh, over the years, and it's actually I think it's a very hard call uh, what, what principles should you use to, to set salaries. Uh, and a, a big factor is just going to be how much money is available. What's kind of the ratio of people who are qualified to do this work versus the, the amount of donations that people are trying to, to give to support it? Over time, um, that ratio has changed a lot. So there's a lot more money available now uh, for each person who has experience in the in the area, um, which has caused, which is like basically driven up wages. Because uh, in that kind of situation, you want to increase retention and increase your ability to hire people as as as, as much as possible, so that you don't end up like sitting on a bunch of money that, that, you, that you can't usefully spend. Um, I guess I think in. Given that uh, there is quite a lot of money available to support this, probably we want to go for something uh, like sh short of market wages, but like in that in that direction, and then allow people to donate back uh, if if they choose to support um, the organisation. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so that way, you can kind of get the best of both worlds. People who want to be more altruistic by giving back their salary and not taking much money uh, can you know easily have that option by just you know choosing to give up uh, some of their salary. Um, but people who would only come and work and do this kind of like very specialized uh, work a lot of the time, um, if they can get paid something closer to a market wage, uh, are, are able to do that. And I mean, a lot of people, you know, they have families, they're potentially living in quite an expensive uh, area. Um, it, it, it's probably a, a bit much to expect that everyone who is going to work in this, um, you know, field of research in any capacity or field of work in any uh, capacity should be earning a very, a very low salary. Hmm. Because it's a hard decision that all kinds of charities face, uh, that, uh, that, that call as to how you remunerate and treat your employees. So there are other aspects as to how uh, 80,000 Hours is run that uh, strike you as different from other charities, not-for-profits, that they could potentially learn from? Um, so I think one thing is that we've grown our staffing uh, relatively slowly. We've been around for seven years and now we have nine staff. So we've really focused on hiring, like only hiring when we're very confident that that we uh, want someone and that, that they're the right for the for the organisation. Um, and as a result, we haven't yet lost anyone, or like everyone who's come to work uh, for I think more than six months has stayed uh, mm. to, to to the present day. That's I think not typical for businesses, not typical for nonprofits either. It is closer to the convention. So we went through this startup accelerator called uh, Y Combinator in the Bay Area, um, which normally deals with tech startups, but also started this nonprofit program. And they think that organizations are kind of perhaps over-enthusiastic to grow by hiring lots of new people, and they, they don't appreciate the like, huge management overheads that that's going to create and also the, uh, the coordination problems that it has when you have a very large team and people like, lose track of what's going on. 
uh, and also potentially you hire people who aren't like quite up to the up to the job and then it's like very difficult to get rid of them potentially or it's demoralizing when you start shrinking the team as well so we've taken this like very methodical approach we hire only when we're like very enthusiastic about hiring someone uh, like everyone kind of gets up to up to speed before we uh, start hiring hiring even more people. We're, we're increasing the, the the rate of growth, but I think that's something that more organizations should, should seriously consider, or that new organizations should plan for, is that you're not just going to be able to hire like lots of great people to take over all these parts of kind of the, the, the job that, that you're not interested or that you, that you don't enjoy, um, and potentially because like a bad hire can be can be such a disaster, it's uh, you're going to want to hire hire quite quite um, deliberately. What else? Oh, um, I guess so. Another thing we uh, we learned from Y Combinator, I guess, is to always have um, metrics that you like talk about at, at at the meeting each week. Uh, so every week we talk about um, whose careers we think we've we've changed that week, and we have a database of all of the careers that that we've changed, uh, where we like describe what uh, we think they were going to do before and what they did as re as a result of us existing. Um, and I think that is just a great kind of lodestar to have there. It's like every week you have to like be honest with yourself about, you know, did we actually accomplish anything uh, this week? And, and kind of what, what content, like what podcast episodes are actually working to convince people to do something more useful with their career than they, than they would otherwise. Um, without that, it can be uh, very easy to lose direction, um, very easy to just do things that are fun or also things that like get attention. Like to, you might go for media coverage because that feels like you're accomplishing something, even though in reality it's not actually driving mm. uh, the bottom line. I guess that's something that matters more for nonprofits, perhaps even than, than companies, because companies they always have like actual money, uh, like things cash out in terms of try, trying to make trying to make dollars, like close deals, get sales. For nonprofits, often they don't have a clear metric at all, and it's like um, it can take a long time for them to figure out some metric that they can like get on a reasonable time scale that actually tracks at all with what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, but having done that, I think it really helps to yeah, have that discipline every week. And that's presumably coming through people uh, taking initiative to to email you, or, or from the uh, when you're when you're doing the face to face or, or uh, direct direct conversations with people. Right. So we get it through various different mechanisms. Uh, one is yeah, people can just fill out our impact survey on our website, so, uh, where they just describe what they were doing before and how how we influence them. Uh, and we kind of push out that survey once a year uh, to encourage people to let us know if, if we've helped them over the last year. Yeah, uh, th then there's also, um, we follow up with people who we've spoken to one-on-one -on -one, uh, to find out if we've helped. Um, I guess there's also some tools on, on the website. Uh, we have like tools for helping people plan out their career and like make sure that they've considered all of the different things that they ought to consider. Uh, and then sometimes we can look at people's entries on that and see if, see if it's helped. But uh, yeah, we, so we decided on this, this metric uh, about four years ago and then having having like having figured out a metric then you can kind of build that into all of your systems to like to, be, to begin to track it initially it's like it's it's very hard because it seems like it's a huge overhead uh, but then over time i think it, it becomes easier because you build build systems to to track your track what you care about uh do you find having now uh worked for several years in uh, in the area of altruism that that's made you a more altruistic person yeah i'm i'm not i'm not sure whether it has i, I guess one one thing is, uh, I think when I was a teenager, I was in, in my early twenties. I was more stressed out about uh, whether I was ever going to be able to do anything useful. I'm like, oh, there's all these like big problems. You know, uh, we might have a nuclear war. You know, how how, how am I going to work to work to stop that? I, I don't see any avenue to to, to make a contribution here. Uh, and so perhaps uh, like altruism was like on my mind more often because I'm like worried about whether I'm ever like what am I going to do. Um, now having found a role where I think I'm like I'm having quite a bit of impact and I'm like relatively specialized in it such that it uh, seems relatively clear that I should stay in this role or a very similar role. Uh, perhaps I, I need to worry, I'm less, I'm less anxious. So I have to worry about it and think about it less often. Uh, so I can kind of just get on, get on with what I'm doing and what I enjoy doing. Um, so 
Yeah, I, I think that having a lot of people who are very concerned about ethics and philosophy around me definitely has, has kept me on, 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 on the right track. But I wouldn't say that I think about it maybe more than I did uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate. Do you give to people, the homeless people on the street? Uh, no, I don't. Why not? Well, uh, so there's some arguments that it's actively harmful, uh, and in some circumstances it, uh, it might well be. Uh, in other cases, I um, just think that it's like it's not the best use of my money. If I was going to give money away, I'd, I'd rather give it to um, yeah, other organizations that we've evaluated that we think are, are going to make a, a huge contribution. Perhaps another thing is it's... Um, if you're open to, to giving to homeless people who ask you for money on the street, uh, then every time someone asks you, you have to consider, like, what am I going to do, which is itself, I think, quite unpleasant. If you just pre-commit to, no, I don't think this is actually morally a good thing to do, uh, either because it's harmful or it's at least not the most efficient use of my money uh, in, in terms of improving the world, uh, then uh, I can just hopefully, I can avoid, like, making an active decision uh, every time and uh, with the kind of stress and the, yeah, and the, uh, the anxiety that comes with that. Do you engage with those people? Do you try and have a conversation with them? Uh, sometimes, I think. Uh, typically not to be honest. I mean, in San Francisco, the amount of homelessness is uh, very large. It could yes. like, end up eating up a lot of your, a lot of your time. Uh, you get approached uh, you know, more than one time on every block. So unfortunately, the, the heart does get, uh, the heart does get uh, harder in, in that kind of situation. So you're thinking about the trade-offs in terms of the amount of time that that means you can spend in your office doing effective altruism work? Uh, I think it, it would be very interesting. I, I, I um, recently did some research to uh, learn more about homelessness in, in the Bay Area. I was under the misapprehension that um, homelessness in the Bay Area was driven by people moving there um, because it was like a relatively pleasant place to be homeless in the, in the scheme of things. But that actually, uh, based on what I read, isn't true. It's, it, most people have been displaced by uh, rising rents, uh, but like did then um, were reluctant to, to, to leave the area and so instead started living in, in, in tents in various places. And, and I then considered uh, talking to people to learn more about uh, their experiences, but uh, this was only a few weeks ago, so I have, I have not done that yet. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, there, when I was uh, studying at Harvard, there was a uh, homeless guy, Chip, who uh, would... Uh, uh, panhandle on the on the, road, the route that I took home and uh, uh, getting to chat away with him I found sort of one of the most eye-opening things as, as, a, as a student who was also studying poverty and inequality. I still remember Chip saying at, at one point, you know, I don't make minimum wage, but I do get to set my own hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a lovely, a lovely insight that, uh, that, that, that I never would have gotten in the, cl in the classroom. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah. What, what do, you, do you think that giving to homeless people is um, potentially harmful? Do you, do you have any view on the actual consequences of it? Uh, yeah, I agree with you that, uh, that then you're, you're setting up a, a odd incentives and, uh, and so we, we don't want a society in which the only way of getting the resources you need to get through the day is to, is to beg. Um, I, I, don't, I don't, want to, don't want to live in a society, a society that, that encourages begging, um, but there's, if you can identify the moments in which uh, giving somebody some money might, or, or, or a, um, something in kind might make a difference, then that's worthwhile. My son and I were at uh, the local shops a couple of weeks ago and getting a pie for him, and there was a guy outside who looked hungry, and so we got a pie for the guy who was there. And in that instance, it seemed a bit, it seemed a bit different, but that I'd apply the same general rule that you would. Yeah. Um, so going to some of your uh, some of your life principles, um, you have this uh, this this lovely notion that uh, most hard choices in life are a difficult balancing act between pros and cons, risks and reward. So as a result, most general pieces of advice we get in life, for example, we only regret the chances we don't take, 
can't help. Uh, so should we stop giving out general pieces of advice? Uh, potentially, yeah. I just think it's often not not super helpful. And, well, often you find kind of aphorisms on, on either side of the thing. So it'd be like, uh, look, was it? This is, um, there's like various you know, sayings that encourage risk-taking, there's various sayings that encourage caution. Um, and the problem is it is just typically a judgment call that people have to kind of get through experience or like understanding the world, being able to predict the relative probabilities of different things in order, in order to make good, good calls there. Um, there probably are some situations that I can't think of off the top of my head where general rules uh, really, really are helpful. Uh, perhaps I was thinking with, 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 with the hiring one, uh, if, if it's not like a really strong yes, then, then it's a no is probably a generally good rule, given that people, I think, are biased in favor of hiring. Right. Uh, but um, I think with, with many other things like, uh, yeah, risk taking or, you know, relate, like should you stay in a relationship or should you leave? It's actually often just really hard to know. And, and you just can't give like a, a general piece of advice that's going to apply to all situations. It has to be a lot more subtle than that. Sounds like you're suggesting perhaps we should uh, listen a little more and uh, offer aphorisms a little less. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, I guess I would encourage people to engage in kind of uh, act, try to do accurate forecasting, perhaps. So if you're thinking like, you know, should I should I stay in, in this relationship or should, should I should I leave? Mm. Maybe like, try to think, you know, what is the probability that I'm going to like feel good about this relationship in a year? What's the chances that this like... Uh, Characteristic that this person has, which bothers me, is going to change. Yeah. Um, and you know, what, how how much would it cause me to suffer if it doesn't change? Like, try to just like think it through, um, like think through the actual consequences of different courses of action um, as much as you can. You've also argued that the long-term future of humanity matters more than anything else, and uh, by which you're talking about the moral value of our actions more than a hundred years into the future. Uh, that's um, that's a hard notion to get your head around to to think about having an impact after you're dead. Mm. Yeah, I guess I, I don't find it uh, hard to think about. Maybe it's just become very intuitive to me. But basically, if you, um, humanity could just continue existing for hundreds, thousands, possibly millions of years, or you know, humanity or, or its successors. Um, and so there's going to be so many more people, uh, you know, in expectation, uh, alive in the future than, than are alive today. And there's things that we do today that, that could, could affect them. To begin with, for example, if you have a child, then in a sense you're causally responsible for all of the children that they have, uh, which could be like a, a very large number, you know, leading out into the future. Um, uh, and so, yeah, just given, given the stakes of, of uh, you know, the, the future of humanity, the, the potentially trillions of, you know, beings that, that there might be, uh, it does seem quite natural to me that, like, the, the biggest impacts that, that we have, the biggest moral impacts we have are going to be on, on them rather than the relatively small number of people who, who are alive today who we can affect. So then, to put this in an economic lens, you presumably think we should have a zero discount rate in the future or some small discount rate that only takes into account extinction risk? Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think that's about right. Um, there's, a, there's a whole literature on, on kind of long-termism and what does that imply for discount rates. Uh, discount rates can make sense when you're thinking about uh, like relative prices given that uh, you can save money, earn interest, and then buy things for less in the future. Um, so... Uh, Uh, so yeah, it, it can be quite complicated when you're actually trying to, to, to organize a project to figure out exactly what, what discount rate you ought to use. Another factor is uh, if you're trying to advocate on uh, about an important about, about an important issue, then you can potentially build a lot of momentum by convincing one person today, and then they convince other people in the future. Mm. And so you can get this kind of uh, like the sooner you can start convincing people, then the more uh, the, the sooner the whole thing grows. It actually is like very hard to analyze. So you have to like build out spreadsheets and think about you know where do things like tail off potentially in hundreds of years' time. Um, but basically, no, I think we should, when we're considering actions, we should think uh, about 
like we should care as much about the impact that we have on a person in a hundred years' time as 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 today. So there, that seems to play into your desire to change the career trajectory of young people uh, to the extent that you can move a, a significant number of young people onto different paths, then you're potentially not just affecting them, but also their, their, their children and their, their spouses. Yeah, that, uh, that is a potential benefit. Actually, I uh, hadn't, hadn't really thought about it uh, that, that, that much. I think that the main reason we focus on people's careers is that with like, relatively small nudges, you can like, that only take like, hours on, on our behalf mm. or, or their part, you can completely change what, what area someone works in or what problem they decide to work in. So you get, I think, yeah, we're mostly going for the advocacy uh, leverage there. Um, perhaps rather think about what, what impact it will, it will have on their children. But uh, it is, yeah, when you think about it, uh, it is surprising, like what impact like promoting an idea today might potentially have if it takes off and becomes uh, like very, very common uh, and like lasts for hundreds of years. The impact can be much larger than what's initially apparent to you. Yes, and I suppose I think that in uh, contrast to the uh, notion that you should uh, work in a high, in a well remunerated career and give money back, uh, which might have. Uh, a bigger impact in this it, over the short term, but over the long term may not have the sort of intergenerational benefits that uh, that you seem to be celebrating. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, some people have suggested that. Uh, so we're very concerned about the, the long term. Uh, you, you can earn about four percent return on, on your money on average per year. So perhaps people should start saving lots of money now, put it in foundations, and expect to disperse it in hundreds of years, possibly even thousands of years, if you can keep a uh, foundation for that long. And I, I don't have the, the numbers to hand here, but exponential growth means that the amount of money that you'd be, be able to give away in future is vastly larger than, than what you'd be able to, to, to give away today if, if you're willing to be patient and, and wait. There's obviously like other considerations in the other direction in favor of acting now, like it's more important to perhaps promote ideas sooner. Or if, if you're concerned about you know, the risk of human extinction, uh, then obviously you don't want to wait until after that extinction has already happened, then, then the, the money is, is, is destroyed and, and, and squandered. Uh, but uh, yeah, if, if you're thinking about the very long term, then it, it, like a whole lot more possibilities have potentially opened up. Or th these like things that you probably don't think about when you engage in normal nonprofit work, like should we wait like hundreds of years <laughs> with with the funding, or like do we desperately need to race uh, right right away in order to have an impact? You know, before uh, you know there's there's a nuclear war and and, and everything is destroyed. Uh, like can weigh weigh very heavily on our decisions. Wiblin aphorism 17, negative feelings can only be justified if they create some other greater good, which they rarely do. Uh, do you practice gratitude? Do you do gratitude exercises to try and get rid of those negative feelings? Uh, I don't do gratitude uh, exercises that much. I did keep a gratitude journal uh, for a while uh, and it was kind of pleasant, but uh, I'm not very good at keeping habits like that. Uh, I think I'm not usually a very kind of angry person or I don't mm. often have a lot of like uh, bad, bad feelings. Um, that I have to kind of control. So perhaps it's like it's easy for me to say things like this. But I guess the the the, the case where I think of that is someone who's uh, say uh, they f they feel really resentful that they've been uh, treated uh, badly, perhaps, uh, and so they keep like ruminating about like something bad that's happened to them, some injustice that, that they think has occurred, even though that rumination isn't solving the problem or isn't isn't helping them mm. at all. Uh, people often, when they're in that situation, feel like it's kind of justified, it's right that they feel angry or that they feel bad or they feel depressed. Um, and it might be that the best way to get over it is to just you know, feel that way and acknowledge it and then move on. But uh, sometimes I think it can be to, to recognize that what you're doing uh, isn't, like, even if it's understandable, isn't actually helping, any, isn't actually helping the situation. So you should just uh, you know, stop feeling angry, like move on and think about something else, read something else. Right. Taylor Swift, haters gotta hate. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, you've written a, a lovely blog post for uh, the 80,000 Hours uh, website, uh, 80,000hours.org, uh, where you talk about uh, overcoming unpleasantness. Uh, and you've got a, a number of sort of quite interesting insights there, which uh, you say are sort of drawn on notions of cognitive behavioural therapy, um, things like uh, working out whether or not the, uh, the hurt is going to materially uh, uh, impact over a significant period of time, uh, whether there's some upside you haven't noticed, um, whether it's funny or ironic in some way. Uh, did, this, did the idea of doing this checklist for unfortunate events come from particular unfortunate events in your life? Uh, no, I don't think it did. I think it probably came from reading books. Perhaps also my mum, I think, encouraged me to, to, to think this way. Um, so, yeah, it's basically, I've, I have this, I realised that I have, have this list in my head of questions that I go down and ask myself when annoying things happen to me. Mm. So, yeah, just to all of us every day, there's irritations that happen. People who, like, slight you or, like, things that go a bit wrong, people who are running late. The first one there is just, like, is this actually going to harm me materially, like, over any period of time? Almost always the answer is no. And if you can just, like, acknowledge that, well, this person is late, but actually this is going to waste at most, you know, five minutes of my time, so what does it really matter? It can really, yeah, really help to calm you down. Um, uh, I, I think, yeah, partly it's from my parents. Uh, uh, I think also just realizing that I don't want to be unhappy about things and thinking, well, what questions can I ask myself that will calm myself down? And then just like gradually building up this database of like tools that I like pull mm. on whenever I'm like trying to get over uh, being irritated with something so I can remain cheerful. Yeah. I like the notion that you should also think uh, not just about the fact that something bad has happened, but that something much worse could mm. could have happened. And yeah, so negative you, you shift the counterfactual. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, nothing that I have on there is is original, but but by any means. But yeah, it's whenever something bad happens, you could, yeah, just imagine like how much worse it could have been. It's like this this person like damaged my car, but you know, I all, I could have died potentially if you know I'd been like a few meters uh, in, in a different location. So, yes. Uh, I think I think it really does help. I think it really does make a make a big difference. Help you to um, yeah remain calm in the face of uh, frustrations. And I've also been interested. I'm not sure if this is in your list or, or whether whether it's in something else of yours that I was reading. Uh, but the notion of thinking about uh, how you would advise a friend who is in your situation, mm. uh, in a, in a sense, sort of uh, uh, get, getting out, getting outside your experience and getting a bit of perspective on it. Yeah, that, that's 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 in the list there. Um, I mean. It's, I guess it's a lot easier as a friend to be like, well, you know, is being angry about this, you know, helping you at all? Uh, I, I think also people can actually be like a lot. Uh, another case where that's helpful is when you're beating yourself up about something. If you're mm. like, oh, I like missed this deadline or, you know, I did badly in this test. People can often be like absolutely brutal to themselves about their, their, their failings, incredibly anxious about things that are going to happen in a way that they would uh, never be that cruel uh, to, 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 to one of their friends. With their friends are like, oh, well, you messed this up. Like, well, you know, I bet, better like next time we'll like help, we'll help to like debug whatever went wrong and, and make it better. And there's like no point, uh, there's no point being like so cruel to yourself because you like didn't start to something as, as early as you could have, you know, that be, we're all human. Like these are the things you would say to a friend, but like people can have like very dark ruminations. I think in their own head, uh, feel uh, like very inadequate uh, just from like relatively small mistakes that they make. Have you ever had any of that yourself? You yeah. Seem, uh... Uh, yeah, I think a decent amount. I, I often feel like quite guilty, I guess, about uh, like, you know, not working enough or like, you know, doing a task like not, 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 not that well. Um, I have started taking antidepressants uh, a couple of years ago, which actually made a big difference. So it's, uh, uh, I have to like draw on these tools somewhat less, somewhat less than I used to. I got kind of a, a chemical solution to, <laughs> to this problem. But Was that uh, to augment or to remediate uh, were you suffering depression at the time 
Uh, I think somewhat borderline. I think it was like mild depression some of the time. Um, uh, it wasn't it wasn't a super clear cut case where you, uh, I'd obviously want to start uh, trying antidepressants. But I thought, well, you know, I've been like mildly unhappy, you know, enough of my life for for long enough that it was worth giving it a crack. And uh, I guess the, the logic was. I could try taking these drugs. If they make me happy, I'll keep taking them. If they don't, then I can stop taking them relatively quickly. Yes, it would be like, it'll be a pain to, to try them out, you know, the transition on and off uh, or like whatever, you know, negative effects they have. Um, that would be bad. But if, if they work, then I can continue taking them potentially for 50 or 60 years. The, the, the upside there is so large that right. you know, the value of information of finding out whether it's, um, whether it's benefit uh, is going to be really huge. As it turned out, the second one I tried, I think just, just made me a lot more cheerful and like, prevented me from engaging in this rumination as much as I like well, it reduced it about 80 percent so yes yeah I think that was a that was a that was a big win it's one of the one of the better decisions I've made to, to give that a go yes so it sounds like your philosophy is the uh, the, the sort of standard economics one that if you think there's a quicker route on your uh, your commute to work you should always try it because At if it turns once. out to be quicker quicker you can use it every every time yeah so there's this concept people can google is value of information sometimes if you just do the math on like well what's the probability that this will be good and then what would be the benefit to, to, mm. to be able to find that out um this usually encourages people to engage in much more experimentation than they than they would otherwise mm. um there is on the other hand, you know, information often expires over time or it degrades over time because it becomes less relevant. So it might be that, you know, uh, my situation would change and so, like, maybe I, don't, I wouldn't want to take uh, these antidepressants uh, later on anyway. So it, it probably I'm not in expectation going to use them for 50 years, even if they work well. Uh, but nonetheless, I think, uh, in general, people want to try more things at least once than they're usually inclined to do. Yes. Uh, and in terms of your own career, how do you think about improving what you do? Uh, what are your sort of strategies for uh, becoming better at 80,000 hours next year than you are this year? Mm. So with the podcast, I have an advisory group uh, who I like send out a, a feedback form uh, for, for every episode and then find out, uh, you know, did they find it useful in their own career? Did they think it would be useful for someone else? And did they, did they find the episode entertaining? And then uh, they have like the, a free comment form where often they leave quite brutal feedback potentially about mistakes I've made as a host. I think that that has been uh, quite helpful. So I, I, I read those quite obsessively and, uh, you know, have a whole uh, panel of metrics of, you know, how many like new subscribers did we get from, from doing this versus that? Uh, how what was the listing time on, on each different episode? So trying to yeah follow follow the numbers can can, can be useful, I guess. Uh, as as we grow, I'm going to end up doing more and more management, uh, which is something that uh, is kind of uh, a lot of people I think end up like not doing terribly well uh, when when they start managing a team. Uh, so with that, I'm just going to have to I guess collect a lot of feedback from from the people I'm managing on uh, what I'm doing well and 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 what I'm doing badly. Uh, that's uh, I have managed people in the past, but uh, I'm hoping to do a, a, a lot better job at that. Fortunately, I think I'm on uh, good terms with the with the people I'm working with, so I think that they'll be fairly honest about the things I'm messing up. Uh, and do you see yourself staying in this uh, this space for uh, the the rest of your career? I think effective altruism as a whole, yes. Uh, it, I, I like have I guess seven seven years experience now working in that area. It's like. Uh, I started working on it very soon after kind of the term was coined and there was a lot of momentum uh, behind the set of ideas. Uh, so it kind of probably is my comparative advantage in the scheme of things to, to continue working on it. Uh, but if like some amazing opportunity outside of effective action came up to, to, to have an impact, then uh, I, would, I would definitely be, be open to it. But uh, you know, if I were if I were betting, I would I would, I would guess that in 20 years time, I'm going to be doing something broadly, broadly in this area that... Uh, yeah, this is my comparative advantage, and I should I should find other people through my work to take the other positions that I would that I would otherwise consider taking. 
How do you think effective altruism is going to change over that, uh, the, the coming decades? So I think we had an initial period where there was a lot of growth in interest um, that since kind of we've deliberately um, leveled that off, engaged in like less mass advocacy and spent more time just trying to attract the you know, exact readers and the exact kind of people who can actually act and you know, take the kinds of careers uh, that, we, that we think are most, most impactful. So I suspect that it will be bigger, but not huge. Um, and I think it will involve like a lot more kind of uh, you know, smart professionals in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are in you know positions of significant influence, trying to you know change policy in, in a positive direction, or do really useful scientific research, uh, or be in businesses that have an, you know an opportunity to, to make a big difference. It'll be like older, a bit more, a bit more, more, bit more mature, um, and I think mostly be around kind of yeah around professionals uh, doing doing this kind of work. I mean, other people have different visions, but I think that's a that's a reasonably likely one. We quoted you at the outset saying that uh, the same person taken at two different points in their life should be considered as two different people. But given that, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> um, buy Bitcoin, I think, uh, would be uh, pretty good. And, and then sell it, I think, at the end of 2017. Uh, I hope no one else has made that joke on the show. Um, I think, by and large, I kind of stumbled just by following my interests into a into a relatively uh, good career and um, hopefully hopefully I'm doing something that's useful so I'm not sure that I'd want to want to fiddle a ton uh, with with the things that happen uh, I guess uh, one is uh, probably start using a proper desk setup and uh, you know get a get an ergonomic chair and like a nice desk and have a monitor <laughs> up right I think there's something that people underestimate when when they're younger is like how much they're going to end up with like shoulder and neck issues uh, in, in in their work it's kind of a small thing potentially but like it yes. really adds up I think to um, having having a good quality of life oh and another one might be uh, I, th I think I really should have started listening to audiobooks sooner. Um, I kind of struggle to, to concentrate when I'm just reading a, a book on paper, mm. but I can like blast through an audiobook uh, re relatively quickly. Um, but I only found that out um, in, in, in the last few years. But I could have, you know, read a, a hundred more uh, like really informative books if I'd started doing that uh, as, a, as an undergraduate. I, and I should have just like found the money to, to, to buy these Audible books. Like if you're, if you're spending, well, the book might cost $20 uh, to get an Audible. You're going to spend like five or ten hours listening to it. You know, the hourly cost is so small. The, the, the financial cost is really a small fraction of the total time that's going into it. Or the total you know, cost of uh, reading, reading the book. Uh, and, but it would totally be worth it. I think like, yeah, having, having read hundreds of books just like, puts you in a much better position to, to, to make good decisions. Indeed. And there's always public libraries. Uh, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? I guess so. Well, we haven't talked very much about... Um, artificial intelligence uh, here, but I think uh, you know, uh, the invention of artificial intelligence or like a general artificial intelligence at, at a human level and you know, how it's applied uh, and, and by who and, and to what ends uh, could end up being like a very significant driver of uh, the, the future of human civilization. Um, I guess I used to think that our odds of pulling off a safe transition to artificial intelligence making a lot of decisions in society, uh, kind of some, uh, yeah, delegation of decision making from humans to um, AI, uh, our chances of doing that well was low um, because there's just so many ways it could go wrong. Um, I think uh, over the last few years, there's been just like more really smart people who've thought about from an engineering point of view, mm. uh, how do we align artificial intelligence with human interests? Like what are the ways that that can fail to happen? Uh, and things can go off, off the rails. Uh, and how do we just build in safeguards so that doesn't happen? Um, has gone up a lot. There's been a lot of papers written about that. And I'm now just optimistic perhaps that we'll put in the, we'll, we'll have the forethought, we'll do the work ahead of time. Uh, before uh, you know, AI becomes like much smarter than it is today, um, and we'll actually manage that transition in a in a in a safe and peaceful way. Um, I, I'm still still concerned about how it could go badly, but uh, I'm like I'm hopeful that that it will go well. When are you most happy?
Uh, I think one of the things I just most enjoy is, uh, uh, you know, talking in a group of friends, maybe four or five, and like riffing jokes like back and forth. It's a very Australian thing. I think the Brits do it as well. Americans do it a bit less. Um, but there's something that's just so entertaining about, uh, you know, one, you know, someone says something and someone like bounces off of that and then it keeps going back and forth and gets funnier and funnier. Um, it's kind of a magic that's a little bit hard to capture. I guess often sometimes, you know, alcohol is involved, uh, can, 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 can help with that. <laughs> uh, but you know, get, get that about once a week, but it's just like excellent. So uh, you'll be looking forward to moving back to London for, uh, for, for boosting this aspect of your happiness then. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been missing my colleagues and missing my friends uh, a little bit in Australia. Yeah, most of the people I know now are in America and, and, and the UK. So um, it, will be, it will be good to be back in the office. We have a lot of banter in the office, so, which I think, is, I think is excellent. Yes, it, I remember being struck in the States the extent to which the, uh, the, the folks from Commonwealth countries would, uh, would hang out together uh, and that sense that uh, the Americans would beat us for earnestness and drive and innovation and entrepreneurship, but uh, we, would, we would beat them for rapid-fire humour. Making fun of jokes. people. Exactly, yes, yes. <laughs> Equally important skills as, you know, driving the economy or <laughs> inventing new valuable techniques. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Yeah, I guess so. so we discussed uh, trying out antidepressants. I suppose uh, I do do intense exercise um, a few times a week, um, and I think as long as you keep that up, uh, then you can like potentially find it very enjoyable to to, to do intense cardio, uh, do, do do weightlifting. It's like always hard to start up if if you start, but uh, I think in terms of like yeah, making me feel uh, happy and like good about myself, uh, yeah, just. It's, it's very hard to beat, uh, you know, intense exercise or, or walking every day at the least, yeah. Specifically, what do you do? Oh, uh, so unfortunately I have, I have a knee injury. <laughs> so it's like another thing I would tell my younger self is to be more careful about uh, injuries. Uh, Look after your knees, you only have two, you probably need them both. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I started doing uh, kind of intense like spin cycling uh, classes um, and also just, just some standard weightlifting kind of squats and things like that. Hmm. How uh, are you working to a sort of uh, goal in terms of what you can do? Well, just don't get fatter as I get older, I suppose. <laughs> like, try to roughly maintain my like. Right, yeah, right. So it's your weight rather than the weight on the bar that you're most right. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, I'm not a huge one for guilt in general. Um, I guess I spend much too long reading Twitter uh, and perhaps I enjoy kind of satire or mockery of people I disagree with, even perhaps when it's like not entirely fair. And I know it's not entirely fair. It's like, you know, us. Um, strawmanning strawmanning their position but it can still be uh, very funny to read and there's a lot of that on twitter far, far too much of it really but yeah it is it is enjoyable you don't worry that you'll be on your deathbed and thinking was it really a good use of my life to spend a year on twitter uh well i do, i guess i'm not a big one for I worry that like the, the perspective that you have when you're in a deathbed is just one of many perspectives and it's, it's not it shouldn't necessarily be privileged. So when you're on your deathbed, you're going to be thinking like very philosophically, you're in far mode, uh, like this is kind of construal level theory of psychology. So you're going to be thinking at this very abstract level potentially, thinking about the big picture of your life. Um, also, you're surrounded by your family, so what are you going to say? I should have spent more time in the office, probably not. Uh, but I prefer to think that like every every minute of your life is kind of an equally important perspective potentially, because uh, I take a kind of hedonist or a philosophically hedonist perspective, um, and it could just be that even though kind of looking back on it, reading Twitter doesn't feel like you've accomplished that much, um, it it was worth it because it was just enjoyable minute to minute. Uh, I'm not I don't know that that actually does go through because Twitter probably it also like can make you feel very anxious and, and frustrated uh, reading say 
the stupid opinions of someone who's sought out because they, they were the person who said an unusually stupid thing on Twitter that day. Uh, but yeah, it, it could just be that reading like cheap, um, cheap comedy actually is like the best way to spend your life, at least from a selfish point of view. And finally, Rob, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, so uh, I guess the, the natural answer is probably uh, Peter Singer because uh, yeah, I think it was like him who got me interested in utilitarianism and then um, effective altruism longer term. Uh, perhaps uh, like a, a less obvious one might be Jeremy Bentham. I think I've read very little of uh, Bentham's original writing, but uh, he's just like trenchant kind of classical utilitarianism focusing on, on, on well-being. He was like a super pioneer of that. And he got so many things right so early on. So he was in the 18th century. He was like in favor of kind of gay marriage and gay rights, like sexual liberation, um, animal welfare, uh, you know, uh, liberation of women, universal suffrage, universal education, um, concern about the welfare of foreigners, which at the time were like was typically disregarded. He was like not only ahead of kind of the 18th century, he was like ahead of our time in many ways. Like a lot of the things that he um, says are kind of cutting edge potentially today or we only got to in the last few decades. Well, I guess on animal welfare, you know, we haven't, it's not clear that we're actually doing any better than we were in the 18th century. Um, so I think, yeah, him leading the way and then that, I guess going into John Stuart Mill and this, and this broader philosophical tradition uh, in, in England uh, probably yeah, has ended up having a, a huge influence on, on what, I, what I think in practice. Rob Woodland, uh, activist, altruist, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights in the Good Life podcast today. It's been really fun. Uh, I guess if you enjoyed this, uh, subscribe to, to the show, the 80,000 Hours podcast with, uh, with Rob Woodland. You can get a lot more of this uh, if, if you're interested. Available on uh, iTunes <laughs> and uh, wherever all good podcasts are found, right? Yeah. Thanks so much for the plug. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.